hello, and welcome to the special Christmas edition of the Happily Ever After podcast. My name is Mason Sontag, and you're listening to this on Christmas Eve. Today, I'm going to be reading a story that's very, very close to my heart. I listen to this story every Christmas uh, on CBC Radio, and I love it. It is The Shepherd by Frederick Forsyth. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I do. While waiting for Control Tower to clear me for takeoff, I glanced out through the cockpit canopy at the German countryside, white and crisp beneath the December moon. Behind me lay the boundary fence of the Royal Air Force Base. Far away to my right, the airfield tower stood up like a glowing candle. Inside the tower I knew all was warmth and merriment, the staff waiting only for my departure to close down and head back to the parties in the mess. Within minutes of my going, the lights would die out, leaving only the flickering red station light beating out in Morse code the name of the station, C-E-L-L-E, to an unheeding sky. For tonight, there would be no wandering aviators to look down and check their bearings. Tonight was Christmas Eve in 1957, and I was a pilot trying to get home for Christmas. My watch read 10.15 by the dim blue glow of the control panel where the rows of dials quivered and danced. It was warm and snug inside the cockpit, the heating turned up full to prevent the perspex icing up. It was like a cocoon, small and warm and safe, shielding me from the bitter cold outside. From the freezing night that can kill a man inside a minute of use exposed to it at 600 miles per hour. Charlie Delta, clear takeoff. The controller's voice sounding in my headphones woke me. I eased the throttle forward slowly with the left hand, holding the vampire steady down the central line with my right hand. Behind me, the low whine of the goblin engine rose into a scream. The snub-nosed fighter rolled. The lights each side of the runway passed till they were flashing in a continuous blur. As the end of the runway whizzed beneath my feet, I pulled the vampire into a gently climbing turn. Down on my right thigh was strapped the map with my course charted on it in blue ink. But I did not need it. I knew the details by heart. Turn overhead C-E-L-L-E airfield onto course 265 degrees. Continue climbing to 27,000 feet. On reaching height... Maintain course and keep speed at 485 knots. Check in with Channel D, the RAF's North German air control frequency, to let them know you're in their airspace. Then a straight run over the Dutch coast and the North Sea. After 44 minutes flying time, change to Channel F and call Lakenheath Control to give you a steer. 14 minutes later, you'll be overhead Lakenheath. After that, follow instructions and they'll bring you down on a radio-controlled descent. Sixty-six minutes flying time with the descent and landing, and the vampire had enough fuel for over eighty minutes in the air. From Lakenheath, I knew I could get a lift down to London after midnight. By breakfast time, I'd be in my parents' home in Kent, celebrating with my own family. The altimeter read 27,000 feet. I eased the nose forward, reduced the throttle setting to give me an airspeed of 485 knots, and held her steady at 265 degrees. Somewhere beneath me, the Dutch border would be slipping away, and I had been airborne for 21 minutes. All well. The problem started ten minutes out over the North Sea. And it started so quietly that it was several minutes before I realized I had one at all. 
The first warning I had was when I flicked a glance downward to check my course on the compass. Instead of being rock steady on 265 degrees, the needle was drifting lazily round the clock. I swore a most unseasonal sentiment against the compass and the instrument fitter who should have checked it. Still, it was not too serious. It was a standby compass, the alcohol kind. When I glanced at it, the needle was swinging wildly too. Apparently, something had jarred the case, which isn't uncommon. In any event, I could call up Lakenheath in a few minutes and they'd give me a GCA, a ground control approach, the second-by-second instructions a well-equipped airfield can give a pilot to bring him home in the worst of weathers. I glanced at my watch. Thirty-four minutes airborne. Before trying Lakenheath, the correct procedure would be to inform Channel D, to which I was tuned, of my little problem so they could advise Lakenheath that I was on my way without a compass. I pressed the transmit button, but instead of the lively crackle of static and the sharp sound of my own voice coming back into my own ears, there was a muffled murmur inside my oxygen mask, my own voice speaking and going nowhere. The radio was dead. Fighting down the rising sense of panic, I swallowed and slowly counted to ten. Then I switched to Channel F and tried to raise Lakenheath. But the steady whistle of my own jet engine behind me was my only answer. While I was vainly testing my radio channels, my eyes scanned the instrument panel in front of me. The instruments told their own message. It was no coincidence the compass and the radio had failed together. Both worked off the aircraft's electrical circuits. Somewhere beneath my feet, amid the miles of brightly colored wiring that made up the circuits, there had been a main fuel blowout. The first thing to do in such a case, I remembered old Flight Sergeant Norris telling us, is to reduce throttle setting to give maximum flight endurance. We don't want to waste valuable fuel, do we, gentlemen? We might need it later. So we reduced the power settings from 10,000 revolutions per minute to 7,200. That way we will fly a little slower, but we will stay in the air rather longer, won't we, gentlemen? I eased the throttle back and watched the rev counter. It operates on its own generator, and so I hadn't lost that, at least. I waited until the goblin was turning over at about 7,200 RPM and felt the aircraft slow down. The main instruments in front of a pilot's eye are six, including the compass. The five others are the airspeed indicator, the altimeter, the vertical speed indicator, the bank indicator, which tells him if he's turning left or right, and the slip indicator, which tells him if he's skidding scrabwise across the sky. Two of these are electrically operated, and they had gone the same way as the compass. That left me with three pressure-operated instruments, airspeed indicator, altimeter, and vertical speed indicator. I knew how fast I was going, how high I was, and if I was either diving or climbing. It is perfectly possible to land an aircraft with only these three instruments, judging the rest by those old navigational aids the human eyes. Possible, that is, in conditions of brilliant weather by daylight and with no cloud in the sky. By night, it is not possible. The only things that show up at night, even on a bright moonlit night, are the lights. These have patterns when seen from the sky. I knew Norwich very well, and if I could identify the great curving bulge of the Norfolk coastline, I could find Norwich, the only major sprawl of lights set twenty miles inland from the coast. 
five miles north of the city I knew was the fighter airfield of Miriam St. George, whose red indicator beacon would be blipping out its Morse identification signal into the night. I began to let the vampire dance slowly toward the oncoming coast. As the fighter slipped toward Norfolk, the sense of loneliness gripped me tighter and tighter. The night sky, its stratospheric temperatures fixed, night and day alike at an unchanging minus 56, became in my mind a timeless prison creaking with the cold. Below me lay the worst of them all, the heavy brutality of the North Sea, waiting to swallow me and my plane and bury us in a liquid black crypt. At 15,000 feet and still diving, I began to realize that a fresh enemy had entered the field far away. To right and left, ahead, and no doubt behind me, the light of the moon reflected on a flat and endless sea of white. The East Anglican fog had moved in. There was no question of trying to overfly the fog to westward. Without navigational aids or radio, I'd be lost over a strange, unfamiliar country. Also out of the question was trying to fly back to Holland. I had not the fuel. Relying only on my eyes to guide me, it was a question of landing at Miriam St. George, or dying amid the wreckage of the vampire somewhere in the fog-wreathed fens. At 10,000 feet, I pulled out of my dive, increasing power slightly to keep airborne, using up more of my precious fuel. Still a creature of my training, I recalled again the instructions of Flight Sergeant Norris. When we are totally lost above unbroken cloud, gentlemen, we must consider the necessity of bailing out of our aircraft, must we not? Of course, Sergeant. Unfortunately, the single-seat vampire is notoriously difficult to bail out of. What else, Sergeant? Our first move, therefore, is to turn our aircraft towards the open sea, away from all areas of intense human habitation. The procedures were well worked out. They did not mention that the chances of a pilot bobbing about on a winter's night in the North Sea were one in a hundred of living more than half an hour. One last procedure, gentlemen, to be used in extreme emergency. That's better, Sergeant Norris. That's what I'm in now. All aircraft approaching Britain's coast are visible on the radar scanners of the early warning system. If, therefore, we have lost our radio and cannot transmit our emergency, we try to attract the attention of our radar scanners by adopting an odd form of behavior. We do this by moving out to sea, then flying in small triangles turning left, left, left again. Each leg of the triangle being of a duration of two minutes flying time. In this way, we hope to attract attention. When we have been spotted, the air traffic control is informed, and he diverts another aircraft to find us. When discovered by the rescue craft, we formate on him, and he brings us down to the cloud or fog to a safe landing. Yes, it was the last attempt to save one's life. I recall the details better now. The rescue aircraft, which would lead you back to a safe landing, flying wingtip to wingtip, was called the Shepherd. I glanced at my watch. Fifty-one minutes airborne. About thirty minutes left of fuel. I pulled the vampire into a left-hand turn and began the first leg of my first triangle. Below me, the fog reached back as far as I could see. And ahead, toward Norfolk, it was the same. Ten minutes went by. 
nearly two complete triangles. I had not prayed, not really prayed, for many years, and the habit came hard. Lord, please get me out of this bloody mess. When I had been airborne for 72 minutes, I knew no one would come. I felt the rage of despair welling up. I began screaming into the dead microphone. You bastards! Why don't you look at your radar screens? Why can't somebody see me? So damn drunk you can't do your job properly! The anger subsides. Five minutes later, I knew that I was going to die that night. Strangely, I wasn't even afraid anymore. Just enormously sad. It's a bad thing to die at twenty years of age with your life unlived. And the worst thing is not the fact of dying, but the fact of all the things never done. I dropped the left wing of the vampire toward the moon to bring the aircraft onto the final leg of the last triangle. Down below the wingtip, against the sheen of the fog bank, a black shadow crossed the whiteness. It was another aircraft, low against the fog bank, keeping station with me through my turn a mile down with the sky toward the fog. Being below me, I kept turning wing down to keep in sight. The other aircraft also kept turning until the two of us had done one complete circle. Only then did I realize why he did not climb to my height and take up station on my wingtip. I eased the throttle back and began to slip down toward him. He kept turning. So did I. At 5,000 feet, I knew I was still going too fast for him. To reduce speed even more, I put out the air brakes, slowing down to 280 knots. Then he was with me, 100 feet off my wingtip, and we straightened out together, rocking as we tried to keep formation. The moon was to my right, and my own shadow masked his shape and form. Even so, I could make up the shimmer of two propellers whirring through the sky ahead of him. Of course he could not fly at my speed. I was in a jet fighter, he in a piston-engined aircraft of an earlier generation. He held station alongside me for a few seconds, then banked gently to the left. I followed, keeping formation with him, for he was, obviously, the shepherd sent to bring me down. And he had the compass and the radio, not I. For the first time, I could see him well. To my surprise, my shepherd was a de Havilland mosquito, a fighter-bomber of World War II vintage. And then, I remembered that the meteorological squadron at Gloucester used mosquitoes to help in the preparation of weather forecasts. Inside the cockpit of the mosquito, I could make out against the light of the moon a muffled head of its pilot, and the twin circles of his goggles as he looked out the side window toward me. Carefully, he raised his right hand till I could see it in the window, finger straight, palm downwards. He jabbed the fingers forward and down, meaning we are going to descend, formate on me. I nodded, and quickly brought up my own left hand so he could see it. Pointing forward to my own control panel with one forefinger, then holding up five splayed fingers. Finally, I drew my hand across my throat. By common agreement, this sign means I only have five minutes of fuel left. Then my engine cuts out. I saw the muffled, goggled, oxygen-masked head nod in understanding. Then, we were heading downward toward the sheet of fog. He pulled us out at three hundred feet. The fog was still below us. I could imagine the stream of GCA instructions coming from the radar hut into the earphones of the man flying beside me. 
I kept my eyes on him, afraid of losing sight, watching for his every hand signal. Two minutes later, he held up his clenched left fist in the window, then opened the fist to display all five fingers against the glass. Please lower your undercarriage. I moved the lever downward and felt the dull thunk as all three wheels went down. In the moonlight, I caught sight of the nose of the mosquito. It had the letters J.K. painted on it, large and black, probably for call sign Jig King. He leveled out just above the fog layers, so low the tendrils of candy floss were lashing at our fuselages, and we went into a steady, circular turn. I glanced at my fuel gauge. It was on zero, flickering feebly. For God's sake, hurry up, I prayed. I saw his left hand flash the dive signal to me. Then he dipped toward the fog bank. I followed. We were in it. The visibility was down to near zero. No shape, no size, no form, no substance, except that off my left wingtip, now only forty feet away, was the form of a mosquito flying with absolute certainty towards something I could not see. Only then did I realize he was flying without lights. For a second, I was amazed, horrified by my discovery. Then I realized the wisdom of the man. Lights in a fog are treacherous, hallucinatory, mesmeric. You can be attracted to them not knowing whether they are forty or a hundred feet away from you. The tendency is to move toward them. For two aircraft in the fog, flying formation, that could easily spell disaster. Without warning, the shepherd pointed a single forefinger at me then forward through the windscreen. It meant, there you are, fly on and land. I stared toward the now streaming windshield, nothing, blackness. Then, a streak of paint running underneath my feet, the center line. Frantically, I closed down the power and held her steady, praying for the vampire to settle. Bang, we touched. Bang, bang, another touch. She was drifting again inches above the wet, black runway. Bam, 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 diddy, bam, rumble, rumble, rumble. She was down, the main wheels had stuck, and held. Slowly, the vampire came to a stop. I found both of my hands clenched around the control column, squeezing the brake lever inward. I forget now how many seconds I held them there before I would believe we were stopped. There was no need to turn off the engine. It had finally run out of fuel as the vampire careened down the runway. I shut off the remaining systems and slowly began to unstrap myself from the seat. As I did so, to my left, through the fog, no more than fifty feet away, the mosquito roared past me. I caught the flash of the pilot's hand in the side window, and then he was gone up into the fog before he could see my answering wave of acknowledgement but I had already decided to call up Gloucester to thank him personally. I expected the control tower truck to be alongside in seconds, for with an emergency landing, even on Christmas Eve, the fire truck, ambulance, and half a dozen other vehicles were always standing by. Eventually, two headlights came dropping out of the mist and stopped twenty feet away. The voice called, Hello there! I stepped out of the cockpit, jumped from the wing to the tarmac, and ran toward the lights. At the wheel of the car was a puffed, bearded face with a handlebar mustache. Is that yours? He nodded toward the dim shape of the vampire. Yes, I said. 
Yes, I just landed it. Extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. You better jump in. I'll run you back to the mess. As we moved away from the vampire, I saw that I had stopped twenty feet short of a ploughed field at the very end of the runway. You're damn lucky, he shouted, and he seemed to be having trouble with the foot controls. Judging by the smell of whiskey on his breath, that wasn't surprising. Damn lucky, I agreed. I ran out of fuel just as I was landing. My radio and all the electrical systems failed nearly fifty minutes ago over the North Sea. He digested the information carefully. No radio? No radio, I said. A dead box on all channels. Then how did you find this place? He said. I was guided in, I explained patiently. They sent up a shepherd aircraft to bring me down. It was one of the weather aircraft from RAF Gloucester. Obviously, he had a radio. So we came in here in formation on GCA. Then when I saw the lights and the threshold at the runway, I landed myself. The man was obviously dense as well as drunk. Extraordinary, he said. We don't have a GCA. We don't have any navigation equipment at all. Not even a beacon. Now it was my turn to let the information sink in. This isn't RAF Miriam St. George. Now, he said. This is RAF Minton. I've never heard of it. I'm not surprised. We're not an operational station. Haven't been for years. Minton's a storage depot. He stopped the car and got out. I saw we were standing a few feet from the dim outline of a control tower adjoining a long row of huts, evidently once flight rooms, navigational and briefing huts. The man returned and climbed shakily back behind the wheel. Just turning the runway lights off, he said, and belched. My mind was worrying. Why did you switch them on? I asked. Well, it was the sound of your engine, he said. I was in the officer's mess having a nog, and old Joe suggested I listen out the window for a second. You sounded damn low, almost as if you were going to come down in a hurry. Thought I might be of some use. I remembered they never disconnected the old runway lights when they dismantled the station, so I ran down to the control tower and I switched them on. I see, I said, but I didn't. Where is RAF Minton exactly? I asked him. Five miles in from the coast, he said. And where's the nearest operational RAF station with all the radio aids, including GCA? He thought for a minute. Hmm. Must be Miriam St. George, said he. Mind you, I am just a storage jolly. That was the explanation. My unknown friend in the weather plane had been leading me straight in from the coast to Miriam St. George. By chance, abandoned old storage depot Minton lay right along in the flight path of Miriam's runway and this old fool had switched on his lights as well. Coming in on the last ten miles, I had plucked down my vampire in the wrong airfield. I was about to tell him not to interfere with modern procedures that he couldn't understand when I choked my words back. My fuel had run out halfway down the runway. I'd never have made Miriam ten miles away. I'd have crashed down in the field short of the touchdown. We stopped at the officer's mess and went in. The place had seen better days. My host, the Flight Lieutenant Marks, shrugged off a sheepskin coat and threw it over a chair. I'm sorry it's not very hospitable, old boy, said Marks, 
going to the door and shouting for someone called Joe. Not to worry, I said, though I could do with a bath and a meal. I think we can manage that, he said, trying hard to put the genial host. I'll get Joe to fix you up a spare room. God knows we have enough of them. You'll also rough up a meal. Bacon and eggs do. That'll be fine. While I'm waiting, do you mind if I use your phone? He ushered me into the mess secretary's office, and then went off to supervise the steward. My watch told me it was close to midnight. Hell of a way to spend Christmas, I thought. Then I recalled how thirty minutes earlier I'd been crying to God for help, and I felt ashamed. After a few minutes, the phone was ringing. RAF Miriam St. George? Duty controller, air traffic control, please, I said. There was a pause. I'm sorry, sir, but I'm afraid there's no flying tonight, sir. No one on duty in air traffic control. Then give me the station duty officer, please. When I got through to him, I explained about the emergency and that his station had been alerted to receive a vampire fighter coming in on emergency landing without radio. He listened attentively. I don't know about that. I don't think we've been operational since we closed at five o'clock this afternoon, uh, but I'm not on air traffic. I'll get to the wing commander. An older voice came on the line. Where are you speaking from? RAF Minton, sir. I've just made an emergency landing here. I thought I was heading for your airfield on a ground-controlled approach. Well, make up your mind. Where you will want you, you ought to know. I took a deep breath and started at the beginning. You see, sir, I was intercepted by the weather plane from Gloucester, and he brought me here. But in this fog, it must have been on a GCA. No other way to get down. Yet, when I saw the lights of Minton, I landed assuming it to be Miriam St. George. I'm ringing to alert you to stand down on your radar and air traffic control crews, sir. They must be waiting for a vampire that's never going to arrive. It's already arrived here, in Minton. But we shut our systems down at five o'clock. There's been no call for us to turn up. But Miriam St. George is a GCA. I know we have, but it's been shut down since five o'clock. I asked the next and last question slowly and carefully. Do you know, sir, where is the nearest RAF station that maintains 24-hour emergency lessening? Yes. To the west, RAF Barham. To the south, RAF Lakenheath. Good night to you. Happy Christmas. I put the phone down. Not only could I not have made Miriam St. George, it wasn't even open. It began to dawn on me that I didn't really owe my life to the weather pilot from Gloucester, but the bearded, bumbling old passed-over Flight Lieutenant Marks, who couldn't tell one end of an aircraft from another. Still, the Mosquito must be back at Gloucester by now, and he ought to know that despite everything, I was alive. Gloucester, said the operator, at this time of night? Yes, I replied firmly. Gloucester, even at this time of night. The duty meteorologist took the call, and I explained the position to him. I am uh, afraid there has been some mistake, flying officer, he said. It could not have been one of our mosquitoes. Uh, they went out of service three months ago. We use Canberra's now. I stared at the telephone in disbelief. Then an idea came to me. What happened to them? They were scrapped, I think, or sent off to a museum is more likely. Could one of them have been sold privately? I asked. 
I suppose it's possible. Thank you. Thank you very much, and happy Christmas. I put the phone down and shook my head in bewilderment. What an incredible night. First, I lose my radio and all my instruments. Then I get lost and short of fuel. Then I'm taken in by some moonlighting harebrain with a passion for veteran aircraft, flying his own mosquito through the night, who happens to spot me, comes within an inch of killing me, and finally a half-trunk ground duty officer has the sense to put his runway lights on in time to save me. Luck doesn't come in much bigger slices. Flight Lieutenant Marks put his head through the doorway. Your room is ready, he said. Number 17, just down the corridor. Joe's making up a fire and your bathwater is heating. If you don't mind, I think I'll turn in. Be all right on your own? Yes, sure, I'll be fine. Many thanks for all of your help. I took my helmet and wandered down the corridor. From the doorway of 17, a bar of light shone down into the passage. As I entered the room, an elderly man began to rise from his knees in front of the fireplace. Good evening, sir, he said. Uh, I'm Joe, uh, sir, the mess steward. Yes, Joe. Mr. Marks told me about you. So sorry to cause so much trouble at this hour of night. I just dropped in, as you might say. Yes, Mr. Marks told me. I'll have your room ready directly. As soon as this fire burns it up, it'll be quite cosy. I ate this plate of sizzling bacon and eggs. The old steward stayed to talk. You've been here long, Joe, I asked him, more out of politeness than genuine curiosity. Oh, yes, sir. Nine and twenty years now. Just before the war, when the station opened. He told me of the days where the rooms were crammed with eager young pilots. The dining room noisy. The bar roaring with the songs of the months and years when the skies above the airfield snarled to the sound of piston engines driving planes to the war and back again. I rose from the table fished a cigarette from the pocket of my flying suit, lit it, and sauntered around the room. The steward began to tidy up the plates. I halted before an old photograph in a frame standing on a mantel above the crackling fire. I stopped, with my cigarette half-raised to my lips, feeling the room suddenly go cold. The photo was old, but it was still clear enough. It showed a young man in his early twenties, dressed in flying gear, but not the grey suits and plastic crash helmets of today. He wore thick, sheepskin-lined boots, rough serge trousers, and a heavy sheepskin zip-up jacket. From his left hand dangled one of the soft leather flying helmets they used to wear, with goggles attached instead of the modern pilot's tinted visor. He stood with legs apart, right hand on hip, a defiant stance. But he was not smiling. There was something sad about his eyes. Behind him stood his aircraft. There was no mistaking the lean, sleek silhouette of the mosquito fighter bomber. I was about to say something to Joe when I felt a cold gust of air on my back. One of the windows had blown open. It took me two strides to cross to where the window swung on its steel frame. To get a better hold, I stepped inside the curtain and stared out. Somewhere far away in the fog, I thought I heard the snarl of engines. But it was probably just a motorcycle of some farm boy. I closed the window, made sure it was secure, and turned back into the room. Who's the pilot, Joe? I nodded toward the lonely photograph on the mantel. That's a photo of Mr. John Cavanaugh, sir. He was there during the war, sir. An Irish gentleman. Very fine man, if I may say so. As a matter of fact, sir, this was his room. What squadron was that, Joe? I was still peering at the aircraft in the background. Pathfinders, sir. 
Mosquitoes they flew. Very fine pilots, all of them, sir. But I believe Mr. Jorney was the best of them all. Uh, but then I'm biased, sir. I was his wingman, you see. There was no doubting it. The faint letters on the nose of the mosquito behind the figure in the photo read J.K. Not Jig King, but Johnny Cavanaugh. The whole thing was clear as day. Cavanaugh had been a fine pilot flying with one of the crack squadrons during the war. After the war, he'd made a pile of money, bought an old mosquito on one of the periodic auctions of obsolescent aircraft, refitted it, and flew it privately whenever he wished. Not a bad way to spend your spare time if you had the money. So he'd been flying back from some trip in Europe, but spotted me turning in triangles above the cloud bank, realized I was stuck, and taken me in tow. Pinpointing his position precisely by crossed radio beacons, knowing the stretch of coast by heart, he'd taken a chance on finding his old airfield at Minton, even in the thick of fog. It was a hell of a risk. But then I'd had no fuel left. So it was that or bust. I had no doubt I could trace the man, probably through the Royal Aerial Club. He was certainly a good pilot, I said reflectively, thinking of this evening's performance. Oh, the best, sir, said old Joe. They reckon he had eyes like a cat, did Mr. Johnny. I recall many's a time the squadron returned. He'd have his mosquito refueled and take off again alone, going back over the channel of the North Sea to see if he could find some crippled bomber making for the coast and guide it home. I've seen pictures of them, I said, and he used to guide them back. I could imagine them in my mind's eye, gaping holes in the body, the wings and tail creaking and swaying as the pilots sought to hold them steady for home, a wounded or dying crew, and the radio shot to bits. I turned from the photograph and stubbed my cigarette butt into the ashtray by the bed. Quite a man, I said, and I meant it. Even today, middle-aged, he was a superb flyer. Oh, yes, sir. Quite a man, Mr. Johnny. I nodded gravely. The man so obviously worshipped his wartime officer. Well, I said, by the look of it, he's still doing it. Now Joe smiled. Oh, I hardly think so, sir. My Johnny went out on his last patrol Christmas Eve, 1943, just over 14 years ago tonight. He never did come back, sir. Went down with his plane somewhere over the North Sea, he did. Good night, sir. Happy Christmas. And that is the end of our Christmas story. Thank you so much for listening. Merry Christmas.